Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. This is a very special podcast for me and it's also the hardest intro I've ever done because I don't know how to describe this guest to you. On one hand, I could talk for days about her and about what she means to me. Honestly, the sound of her laughter during this conversation reawakened something inside me. It's a sound of happiness and of comfort for me and the fact that we were laughing together reconnected me with the power of life's possibilities. I'm not even kidding. Because Tanya Lacey was, in many ways, my first love. She was like no person I'd ever seen before, let alone any young Australian woman person on television. Tanya Lacey popped up on a Saturday morning music show on the ABC in the late 80s called The Factory. She was beautiful. She wore cool clothes. But the really interesting thing about her was that she was hilarious. She was so funny. She did funny interviews with celebrities. She didn't flirt with them. She just showed up at politicians' press conferences and all sorts of places she wasn't supposed to be. She walked in with a microphone and asked important men silly questions. She did characters at them. She made it all look effortless, like she was making it up as she went along. But of course, She was actually an incredibly disciplined, hard worker with a background in dance, of all things, who'd studied at the prestigious Victorian College of the Arts, or VCA. She even choreographed and danced in Kylie Minogue's first music video. Within a couple of years, the factory was no more, but Tanya was chosen to co-host the new nightly music show on the ABC called Countdown Revolution. It's amazing to think now, but in the early 90s, the ABC was quite a robust network with a reasonable budget, and Countdown Revolution was pretty flash. They had a live studio audience of a couple of hundred teenagers in there every night, and quite often the biggest music acts in the world were live in the studio. Tanya hosted the show with Mark Little, who I only knew as Joe Mangle from Neighbours because I was a teenager, but he was also a very well-respected stand-up comedian. I'll leave it to Tanya to tell you how the revolution played out, but I do just have one more detail for you. After Countdown Revolution, Tanya Lacey wrote and starred in a short film called Tiziana Buberini, which was directed by Robert Luketic. The film screened at film festivals all around the world and was very well received at Sundance and Telluride. It won Best Film at the Aspen Shorts Fest and Luketic went on to direct Legally Blonde, win a date with Tad Hamilton and Monster-in-Law, among others. There are two reasons I'm telling you all of this. One is so you'll know what we mean when we talk about Telluride. But the other, more important one, is that we need to talk about what happened to Tanya Lacey. There are some YouTube clips on the Nitty Gritty Committee Facebook page from back in the day. Tiziana Buberini is there which is great. But the Countdown Revolution stuff is very powerful, I think, because that's where you'll see a young woman who really, truly believes in herself. She's a young woman who's working hard and she's having success and she's taking some risks and chasing big goals. The excitement in her face and the energy is intoxicating. It's everything you'd ever want to see in your own daughter. 
And when you hear Tanya talk today, you won't believe it's the same person. Tanya Lacey lives in Berlin, in Germany these days, with her husband and their young son. It's a lot of fun, this city, but it's also sometimes you're just like, no, Berlin, not today. <laughs> like many European countries, we've discovered that the people are very grumpy. I don't know if it's a hangover from the war, but people, I get into trouble every day here. Like I always think, I used to get into trouble a lot in Australia, but at least it was for something important. But here, it's like I get told off every day for something. And when you get a dressing down in German, it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it sounds something when they tell you they love you. Um, you feel like yeah. you're getting a dressing down. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, but yeah, I, it can be very full on, but it's also a great city in that there's always something around the corner. How is it with its COVID? I, I don't hear anything about Germany, Berlin. Well, you know, um, they did really well, but we're having a, a surge now, having another surge. Sounds familiar, yep. Do you feel homesick, though, being away when there is this international really scary drama going on? No. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. No, it's good, good. I'm glad. I mean, I see my parents at least once a year, at least. They fly over, I fly over there, whatever. That's difficult. But by and large, No. I don't have any You feel happy and confident there? Yeah, I do. And I've, I've been much happier in Berlin than I was in Australia. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that because you are one of the earliest sort of iconic people in, in my life in terms of the fact that copying you and copying your characters was my first entree into comedy, into the feeling of what it, of what it's like to have people laugh at you and say, do it again, do it again, and <laughs> call you over and say, do that thing you do. And all I was doing was copying you. And I wasn't even pretending I wasn't because I was a teenager, you know, so it's not like I was pretending they were my characters. <laughs> I was doing I was doing Annette. Annette was my... I love her. Party stopper. Yeah, yeah. Right. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous character because she was an unapologetic dag and she was a librarian and mm. she had the bum part, we used to call it, the part down the middle of her hair <laughs> and she had the face and everything like that and she talked like that. And, <laughs> but it was like she she felt, I always felt like Annette felt sexy and Annette felt like she had a lot going for her. That was my vibe. Did yeah, you feel like, like that? like I think of all the characters I did, Annette was the closest to who I am. As, as a person, not a, you know, performer, but as a person, because that's how I often felt. I often felt like I'm okay, I'm odd, but I'm okay with that. And Annette had that vibe, you know. That's funny because to me you looked very different to that, but what we look like and what we feel like are often different things, aren't they? Because yeah, I, I thought you looked like the epitome of a really good-looking young woman whirling around a great city like Melbourne. So as a teenager, though, I was like, I relate to Annette because I've got greasy hair and I'm a bit of a dag and I don't have a boyfriend. Well, I had none of those things, even as Tanya, but, you know, like my confidence has always been very uh, low, uh, my actual self-confidence and my belief in myself. Tanya Lacey was really a character, you know, like the camera rolled and I became that person. If I could, could have called her someone else, I would have called her Tracy Lacey and I would be Tanya Lacey. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, it was definitely not me and how I felt. But I think that's with everyone. I don't think it's, you know, we all feel, have a, an element of the imposter syndrome and, and I don't think it's unusual. No, but a lot of people then will say, well, then how could you be on television? And Osher Ginsberg says, I think he puts it really well where he says, because he says he's a crushing introvert and he's very, very shy. Mm. And he says, well, the thing is, though, that when I'm on television or I'm on stage, it's like nobody can get at me. It's yeah, yeah. like that's where I'm ultimately left alone, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I get can that. Can you relate to that? And I think that it is. it does seem strange to be talking about yourself as not having a, a huge amount of self-confidence when you're out there doing this stuff that's so out there and so rebellious. But, you know, 
that's that's what it was for me and uh, it probably saved me for a long time. You're also a dancer. How much of your lack of self-confidence comes from dance? Oh, that's a big one. Well, I, I mean, a lot of it, there was a lot of childhood trauma, so there was that. But also, you know, the ballet world is incredibly cruel. I don't know if they'd get away with things that they they did back then. And I trained at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is, you know, it's highly competitive to get into. And then you're in there and it's like, right, we're going to break you down and rebuild you. I mean, every day someone was thrown out of class for something. I was thrown out of class one day because the teacher couldn't bear to look at me because I had muscles like a bodybuilder. Get out. I just can't bear to look at you. Oh, God. So, you know, like there are a lot of body issues and certainly I didn't have the body to be a ballet dancer, but I had God-given talent. That was difficult because it was like people were willing me to just, you know, be more anorexic. Please, you know, you might get away with it if you're just really super thin. But, yeah, that's not my body type. But you fought through all of that. You fought through that. You were the one who ended up on television because your personality and your charisma and most ballerinas are blank slates. They kind of have to be. And you know what? I never fitted into that world because of that very reason. Because when I was at VCI, a drunk teacher dropped me and I snapped the bottom half of my leg from the top half. And that was pretty much the end of classical ballet training. But it was like the universe was going, don't you see, you don't belong here, okay? I have to bash you over the head. Okay, I have to break your leg, you know? (laughs) And that's kind of how I got out of that world and started sort of nightclub dancing, TV dancing. and, And then when I was dancing on Countdown one day, I was mimicking Molly. He saw me. Then I got this phone call, audition for this new show. Then I got that job. But they were like pushing me into this, you know, be a serious reporter kind of this was the factory yeah youth reporter you know and I just couldn't do anything to the camera keeping a straight face because that was just like the more serious I had to be the more ridiculous it seemed so I just started writing stuff and handing it to the directors and saying how about we do this and it just sort of grew from there and also I was a woman on television they didn't care about me it was 1980 Eight, you know, they didn't care about me. They cared about the two male hosts who were getting paid four times the amount of money I was. You know, yeah. I was just meant to be, you know, like over there in the corner. And so because they were ignoring me and I had a great director, it just got more and more wild. And suddenly before I knew it, people were talking about me. And before they knew it, people were talking about me. And it was like, we've created a monster. We didn't see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You were absolutely the star of the show and your (laughs) characters and you had those really bizarre eclectic interests like your Nana Muscuri obsession and things like that. I mean, I didn't know anything about Nana Muscuri until you came along. I loved Nana Muscuri because I read a quote from her when I was quite young, you know, maybe 18 or something, and it was something about how the record companies had tried to get her to get rid of the glasses and ah. and all that stuff, and she stood her ground and she was like, no, this is me. If you can't handle how I look, you don't deserve to hear my voice, you know, and that's why I became obsessed with her because I was like, that's of course. a lady. <laughs> <laughs> but all my friends and I dressed up as Nana Muscuri one day at school, and again the teachers were like, why? Where? <laughs> is coming from that's hilarious it's like this underground club you know then there was the gay mardi gras and there was a float of anonymous stories (laughs) you know it was like it became a thing (laughs) and i remember then when like all those handsome guys would come on the show like bros or whoever and you just weren't you weren't into it you weren't you know yeah like there were girls that would be crying and i'd just be like what is wrong with you (laughs) Yeah, girls, come on, come on. You're a cool role model. And even Kylie Minogue, to be honest, I was one of those girls because of my age group where I thought she was a bit lame when she she started singing. But you choreographed the locomotion video. And so for me, that gave her a bit of cachet. I thought, well, "Well, you know, instant street cred. No, um, I have to say that Kylie, when I first met Kylie, she was a very different person. She hadn't been corrupted yet. She was a very suburban girl, and she admitted herself. And, um, I mean, we even turned up to the clip 
dressed better than what they put us in. You know, we were cooler than what they let us be. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, but it's true. And um, it was kind of like, you know, then Kylie was exposed to London and Nick Cave and, you know, her world grew and she grew with it. Oh, yeah, I remember doing a show at Nana Wadding where they make Neighbours. I don't think they yeah, even yeah. do it there anymore. But, you know, I'd run into those kids when they were leaving for the day and, I mean, they, they were never exposed even to the outside world of Melbourne, let alone mm. anything else, because all they did was work so hard all day and then and go home exhausted. So it yeah. doesn't surprise me that she was a simple suburban girl. They all were they very, did was work. very straight. They, they really hadn't experienced a lot, you know. No. I think with the ballet no. world too, you're exposed to a lot. But as they, you know, like people are grabbing you in the crutch when you're being lifted up. You kind of have to grow <laughs> up about it, you know. Yeah. Like, um, that doesn't happen a lot at Neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, grabbing your boob and swinging you this way and it's, you, you just sort of grow up. <laughs> so how are you psychologically coping with all of this at the time? Are you feeling, is it making mm. you happy? Are you feeling happier? Are you well, growing yeah, into I yourself? Mean, and... When I say it saved me, I really mean that, you know, it's only in retrospect that I see this because my life was so full and I became famous. Yeah. Any of the um, trauma that I had suffered and the depression and everything that went along with that kind of disappeared because I was being filled up by people telling me I was fantastic and, you know, people cheering me on all the time. And so any psychological issues that I had were able to just disappear really and I just kept going forward. Um, and it was the same with ballet prior to that. You know, like to be a dancer, you have to be mildly obsessive. You know, you can't survive in that world without being obsessive because that's what it takes. And it was the same with the work I was doing on television. So these things kind of kept all my problems at bay, you know, like they. But they it just... sounds like the television stuff was more rewarding in that it sounds like you weren't being told, for example, to get out of people's sight because they couldn't stand to look at you. No, that didn't happen. But there was a lot of, um, like I said, I was a woman in the in television in the 80s doing my own thing. You know, and I wasn't with a group of other comedians. I wasn't with like with the D-Gen where, you know, like they had each other to support each other. No, I was alone and I was a young woman and there was stuff that was just amazingly cruel. And, you know, to say that I was taken advantage of, not sexually, I mean just professionally, would be an understatement. Like what? It's just that thing that, you know, men feel that they can say this stuff to you, like not even people in power, just men in general <laughs> feel that they can say things to you that they wouldn't get away with saying to a man or, you know, that feeling too that, you know, instances where I did stand up for myself and I would just be yelled at. You know, I'm holding the phone two metres from my ear and still perfectly hearing what they're shouting at me because I dared to question what about a choice they made about something that I'd done, you know, like why did we cut that early? I just need to know, you know. It was abusive in that way. Yeah. And I didn't even realise it was abusive. It, it was, it's only been recently that I've, I've kind of gone, oh, that was abuse? Oh, oh, that was because I was a woman? I thought it was yeah. because I was shit. You know, like no, I thought it was because yeah. I was no good at what I do that I deserved that treatment. And the more they did it, the more rebellious I became on screen too. The more yeah. I was like, you know, oh, okay, yeah, right, that's fine because I'll just do this now. <laughs> yeah, I can completely relate to all of that because that has not changed, by the way. And also I can relate to the fact that a lot of the time you were on live television, so you can become rebellious on screen because they can't, cut it out so that's <laughs> a place where you can actually but the you know there were even times when stories that I did or sketches that I did would go to air and then they'd come and tell me off afterwards don't you dare say that again don't you dare do that again and it's like you can't tell me this after the fact if you can't be bothered to look at my work prior right, to the show yeah. because you haven't and then you come and blame me that's just not on 
And yet you were the one who was kept on when the show metamorphosized Mm -hmm. from the factory into Countdown Revolution. Yeah, but I wasn't even kept on as a host, though. I was still, they got all these other people in and it got ridiculous because Molly would turn up with, you know, I met this guy on the weekend. He's going to be our new reporter. There'd be like five new people every weekend. And, you know, like there was one time they were saying goodbye to, you know, it was the end of the show and all the hosts and everything were there. And there were like more people on stage than there was in the audience. (laughs) And I didn't even know their names. And I was just out doing my thing. And then basically something had to change and they fired everyone and put Mark and I in the, the host position. Right. Is that how that happened? Yeah. All I remember is you and Mark Little. Before that, that, for a long time, there were a lot of different people on the show. This guy's my <laughs> butcher. He's now in charge of hip-hop music. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And that's the difference between young women and old white men is that Molly just has no hesitation in bringing his butcher in or whoever he thinks is great and saying, yeah, yes, you should be on my TV show and yeah. just chucking him on. Why wouldn't that happen? Why wouldn't that be fine with yeah. everybody? I don't know. <laughs> But that's fine. Yeah, but we're always second guessing. But yeah, I only remember you and Mark Little because at the time I didn't know that Mark was a comedian. Mm. I knew him as Joe Mangle from Neighbours and I was like, why is this happening? But you were great. Was it a great team? It was great and I'm still friends with Mark today and Mm -hmm. we're actually about to start a podcast. But, um, you know, I often felt like with The Factory there was nothing at stake. That show had no budget. No one cared about that show. It was just, you know, meant to be something on a Saturday morning to get their quota of television, children's television up. So we were left to our own devices. When Countdown happened, Countdown Revolution, it had a lot of money and it had a lot at stake. And when there's a lot at stake, people get scared. And that whole creativity, you know, the creative freedom that I had before was kind of, I was feeling like so hemmed in. And the world just got smaller and smaller and what I was able to do and say, because we were also cash for comment, not that I was aware of it, kowtowing to record companies. You know, stop tape. No, you can't say that. We'd never happened before because no one cared, you know. Because suddenly everyone's watching everything. Yeah, and it's a five-night-a-week program in prime time and it's got a lot of money backing it. So... I found that quite a hard transition. You know, thankfully I had a teammate this time. I had Mark. But, yeah, it was a it was a difficult transition. Mm. And in what I thought was hilarious until I realised how painful it was for you, but this program called Countdown Revolution, <laughs> <laughs> the, two, the two of you decided to bung on a revolution at Correct. one stage. Now, what was the, uh, remind me, what, what was the revolution about? Nothing really. Look. <laughs> I remember it. I remember the placards. I remember you stalking <laughs> around the studio. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. That's about all I remember. No. Um, the thing is that uh, the revolution will not be televised. Of course. The thing is that that show, when they brought Mark and I together as the hosts, we want anarchy was their catch Oh, yes. Don't they always say that? We want you to get in the paper. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> we want anarchy. We want you to do and say what you feel and la, la, la. Well, they did want anarchy, just not that particular brand of anarchy. And um, what had happened too was that I had just about reached breaking point. I've never really talked about this. I kind of just about reached breaking point in terms of how much I was being taken advantage of you know like I was working I was producing 20 minutes of pre-recorded stuff a week and hosting the show and there was no real kind of recognition of anything it was just expected and then someone was paying for a trip for someone to go to America to do to interview all these people and they gave it to someone else on the show and it was kind of like but you know that this has been the thing that I've wanted to do for so long, you know, and, oh, well, bad luck. And there was a lot of, you know, we want anarchy, we want anarchy, stop tape. You can't say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why can't we st- say, oh, because that's the record company that's paying for the trip to America, so unless you say what we, you know, it's like are we on yeah. commercial television here now? 
So things were becoming really, really tense. And then, you know, Mark and I came up with that idea, you know, they want anarchy, let's give them anarchy, let's put on a mock strike. And we did that and we were telling people to call the TV network and all this stuff and the switchboard blew up and no one knew what was going on. And, you know, I happen to actually think that that was one of the best shows that we did. If we can have a little bit of quiet, a little bit of quiet, please. Uh, we are announcing a hallmark day in the history of Australian TV. Yes! When the head of ABC Light Entertainment said to me, we want this show, Countdown Revolution, to be anarchy, I said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> have you looked that up in the dictionary, sir? Do you know what anarchy means? He went, yes. No, I've got my doubts. I've really got my doubts. Tonight, we are doing something never before attempted in Australian television. And we're asking you to back us. So this is going to be a long we mean half it. hour. We mean it. If you're not going to back us, leave now. The time for talking is over, revolutionaries, because the protest has begun. Please. The revolution is here. If you would We are now officially on strike. Is this really a revolution or what? Revolutionaries, Finally, we stop for a moment and let you know what's been happening this, here. We have the numbers here of all the ABCs across Australia. If you want to back us, we want you to call. Please, call your ABC now. Yes, they played at Revolutionaries. They've cut us off. Hold them up. They couldn't help themselves. Ah, where can we go? We have a new word of the day. It is scam. Scam. We'll play at the end of the night. One of the things we'd like to talk about is believing in what we do. Yes, revolutionaries. It's happening in here. What? We have to get things off our chest. Bands, when we say the bands are coming in live, they are mouthing their singles. Now, I remember when I was 11 and I found that out. I hated that. We have 25 seconds revolution and then we're up the air. they're going to cut us off, okay? But what we're saying is we are being asked to say a lot of things on this program that we don't believe. Finally, we're coming and showing you behind the scenes. We cannot do it anymore, revolutionaries. This we... is not a revolutionary program. New kids on the block, great. You like them, so... We play them, new kids. Yes, but how can you believe what we're saying when we don't believe we it? We don't pretend anymore. Step by step, ooh baby, gonna get to you. We put it on the line, revolutionaries. We put it on the line. If you support us, phone your ABC now. I want my ABC to be real. like the most dynamic show we did and it was the show that ended it it was exactly the show they wanted but didn't want they really did cancel you after that show well i found out later that they were actually gonna axe the show people thought that i'd heard that and that's that i was chucking a tanty because they were going to axe the show we had no idea that it was going to be axed but then because we did that michael shrimpton who was head of arts and ant at that point decided no we will keep it going. And people were saying, Look, just drop it. It's just such a dead horse now. And he was like, no, no. And they kept it going for a couple more months. But, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be axed. People thought that I did know, that well, people at the network, and that I was just throwing a little hissy fit. That's such, a, such an easy narrative, isn't it, that the woman throws a hissy fit when she gets bad news? Yeah. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of stuff that was going on that I didn't wasn't aware of, just how much control the show was allowing to commercial investors I wasn't aware of. We were really mouthpieces in Cash for Comment prior to Cash for Comment scandal mm. and that didn't set, sit well for me. But, you know, I paid 
dearly for that episode. You know, I still feel like I'm being punished. I still feel like the bulk of my reputation is based on that one incident. Oh, she's difficult because she got fired is, you know, still a, a thing. It's really quite sad. <laughs> if I knew that this was going to be the price, I wouldn't have done it. I really no. wouldn't have. It destroyed me. It really did. And I went from having a very successful career to just persona non gratis. It was awful. And, you know, I went from very famous to nothing. And I was so depressed. I didn't know what depression was then. I was so depressed. I remember one day I was just so bored. I just went out and washed my car. Like, that's all I could think to do. Like, <laughs> and eventually that led to me trying to, you know, suddenly I was on my own. But I have to stop you and say you are so fucking camp that even in describing the depths of your depression, that is the campest <laughs> description I've ever heard in my life. Michelle, I was so low. I went out and washed my car. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is brilliant oh i god. i can only say how sorry i am telling you that you washed your car yeah, that day. I know. It was, uh... that is that's horrible dark times dark times um <laughs> oh god as long as i can still see the words wash me on the back of my car i know i'm okay and yes, that's, that's right of you <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, <sighs> suddenly I was on my own with nothing to do and no fame filling me up, if you like, and uh, I needed something to fill, my, fill me up and I turned to drugs and alcohol. Did you? Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, at the moment, I don't know about how Germany's holding up, but, God, everyone in Australia's drinking and, and, and drugging as well. I mean, you know, it is, it is what we do. And mm. had you been much of a drinker and stuff before that? I'd always, you know, been a bit of a drinker, but, you know, what was great about taking heroin was that um, it stopped me drinking. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to drink when you're face first in the carpet. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I didn't realise I had a drug problem until one night this mosquito bit me and just sort of sucked up my blood and then it flew over and stole my TV. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's wow. when I realised, you know, I've got a problem. And then it washed the car and you thought, oh, fuck. It was out there washing. I'm so sorry for you, mosquito. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, no, um... I did rehab. That was one of the other things I did. I did rehab before that was cool too. In fact, when I did rehab, people didn't know what rehab was. I'd say, oh, I'm going to rehab, and people were like, what's rehab? Like it wasn't a kind of part of our lingo. Yeah. yeah. How long did you do? I was in there for a couple of months, and then I, I finally got clean and sober. And then I decided I could drink. No, couldn't drink. So basically, I have not had a drink now for 18 years. I have not taken drugs for 18 years. Congratulations. So that's, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. It is really good. Yeah, it's amazing. And you know what? I love it. I love it. I love being clear-headed and I, I love waking up and sort of not going, oh, God, I made a dick of myself last night. I don't miss it. I mean, I did at first. It was a long struggle for many, many years. You know, there's still the yearning. But I don't have the yearning anymore. I, I really don't. It sounds as though you do still have the pain, though, of that, that career moment. After that, I wrote so many things and I wrote this great series. I was in development with the ABC for a couple of years and then they finally went, no. God, that can take up a lot of time too, can't it? Yeah, and it's like, you know, and I'm tied up to a contract that says I can't take it anywhere for the next five years and like. <sighs> when did Tiziana Buberini enter your mind, enter your consciousness? She, to me, almost had a an Annette quality about her as well. Because <laughs> it essentially was. And um, Really? Yeah, great. Okay, before we start this story, I think I need a cigarette. Hang on. Absolutely. Take a break. Hang yeah, on. you go for it. Right. Okay, cool. I'll just pause the recording 
I've got a coffee. Get whatever you need, darling. Yeah. Yep, yep. This is the Nitty Gritty Committee, stories about the guts and the glory of life. Today's guest is Tanya Lacey, and we'll be back to discuss Tiziana Buberini and Tanya's trip to Hollywood after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I first started writing Tiziana Biberini. You'll notice that I said I started writing Tiziana Biberini as a half-hour sitcom musical set in a supermarket. At the same time, oh no, even months after I'd started doing that, Robert Luketic came into my life and asked me to be in his VCA film, which then got cancelled. And then I said, well, I'm doing, you know, I'm writing this. It could be a short film. And where were you at emotionally at this stage? Where is this in the in the sort of alcoholism, drug addiction, rehab? Where Where is this? I was clean and sober. That No, I was drinking at that time, but I wasn't um, using. This is post-rehab, but still thinking, maybe I can drink. This is in this. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I was on the dole. I had no money. I would. I was living at home with my parents. Can I paint a much so more is- tragic figure? And washing my car a lot. <laughs> yeah. But this is being an artist and, and you've been knocked down, but you're just going to get back up and you're, you're going to pull yourself together. You're writing, you're working, you're going to pull it together. This is your mindset, right? I would go from my parents' home in North Baldwin to a friend's office every day and work nine to five writing. And I produced a lot of work. And so um, even though I was on the dole, this was my life. I, I just knew that I had to have a routine, nine to five, write, you know. So when the Keddie came into my life, you know, I was probably a great target for someone like that who, you know, I have to be careful what I say, they're very litigious people. Um, But uh, so the film, you know, I wrote this short film, Tiziana Buberini and, you know, his script editor did some work on it and blah, 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 then we had this film. And we shot the film and there's no denying he did a great job directing it. But it wasn't his idea. It wasn't his um, script. To me, there's no denying it's a Tanya Lacey character. She is, as I say, to me she is a sort of a next step from Annette, from those characters that you were writing, Mm -hmm. you know, ten years earlier. There are so many signatures to me from your work in this character. Yeah, I think so. And in the scenario, in everything. Yeah, I I think so. When I went to the screening, his name was on it as the writer. And I questioned him about it, but I didn't really follow through because I thought, "Eh, it's a VCA short film. I didn't know that it was about to become the most watched short film in the world that won Telluride and, you know, so many other prizes. And he got a three-picture deal with Miramax on the strength of that short film. And the idea was that it would be made into a feature. And I said, well, did you tell them where it came from? No, I will give you the the lead role if we just keep this under wraps. Because you had played the lead role in the short film. Yeah. Before we go on, can you tell us about Tiziana Buberini? Who who is she? 
She is, um, again, just someone very close to me, you know, like just that feeling of being the odd one out, the ugly duckling. And I don't think these are very original feelings. These are feelings that a lot of people have, you know, like at some point in our lives, we all feel like that. And I, I also, I love the idea of, because I did it myself, of just breaking into fantasy, you know, like, I'm in trouble, I feel shit, I'm going to sing, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> she was me, she was Nana, she was Annette, she was a lot of things. She was a checkout chick with a moustache. She was. And, um, <laughs> I mean, it's a fairly lame premise, if you will, of like, oh, and now your moustache is gone and you're beautiful. But it, it wasn't really about that for me. It was about the fantasy of, like, yeah. imagine if you could just burst into song. Ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you of Franklin's trading policy. We will provide a wide range of products at constantly lower prices. Anyway, you should see her dress. It's so beautiful. Leg of mutton sleeves. It just comes down really beautiful at the front. Oh, pretty. Did you manage to lose any weight? I'm going to wear my hair up for the wedding. Just in individual cheekbones. Like... Francine on your register, I want you out on the floor. I've just about had enough. Okay. Hi, Francine. And you've got to remember, too, that this was something that was prior to Moulin Rouge, you know, like, mm. so, you know, it was just not a music, things weren't musicals. So when it, when it became a huge thing and I was offered this role, I had, you know, I was a very vulnerable person at this point. You know, I was still new in recovery. I was still, well, not the call it recovery because I was drinking, but I identified that I had issues. I had been diagnosed with a mental illness. And so I was very vulnerable. And I think that when I was offered this role, I was naive to think that I would ever have the role. And, you know, I went to L.A. to, to do this feature. And, of course, when I was auditioning in L.A., people would go, oh, how did you get the role of Tiziana? Because it was known. It was a known film. I was a known quantity in L.A. because of Tiziana. Oh, um, so wanting to protect Robert and wanting to sort of, you know, I, I would say, oh, well, it was a character that I was doing before I met Robert, you know. And then um, it all came to a head when Robert challenged me and said, I've heard that you're telling everyone in L.A. that you wrote Tiziana Buberini. And I said, well, I'm not saying that, but I did write Tiziana Buberini, let's be honest. And he handed me this letter, basically the most grotesque letter I've ever had in my life, saying that, you know, I this is the most difficult thing he's ever had to write. He doesn't like my attitude. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like that. If, if I expect to get 
this role, I need to lose weight, do this, do that. And he expects 100%, 110% from all actresses he works with. Mind you, he, the only film he'd ever shot was Tiziana Bumarini. He'd set up my email account when I first got to LA. I'd written an email to my parents about concerns I had about my management and was kind of, it was a personal letter and it was that I don't know how I feel about it but LA seems to be a town where people just tell you stuff and you have to believe it and I don't know who's telling the truth, I don't know who's being honest. He forwarded that letter to my management. I mysteriously get fired from my management and then I get a letter from Robert saying, "You have because we were sharing an apartment, you have three days to get out and you're fired off the film. And I was like, what is going on here, you know? And then I discovered that he'd forwarded the letter and I discovered that, you know, then it was suddenly all talk that Nicole Kidman was going to do the role. I had to only stay in the bedroom and could use the bathroom and kitchen, but I had to stay in the bedroom. And he just put letters under my door constantly. Wouldn't speak to me, but just kept putting these letters under my door. None of which I responded to because I was just like, okay, I'm, you know, the daughter of a lawyer. I know, do not put anything in writing. Do not respond. Just let this keep rolling out. And then one day I was leaving and he challenged me again and I said, okay, Robert, you know, because he was like, you know that I wrote this film, you know, and I've done this and I've done that and la, la, la. And I said, okay, Robert, let's just play a game. Who came up with the name Tiziana Buberini? And he said, probably me. I was just like, okay, probably you. I know where I sat when I wrote this down. I know what I was thinking. I know what she looked like. I know all this stuff. How can you not know that? If you, How can you say probably me? If you truly wrote this, you would say, well, me and this time and at this place. And I left the house. I was alone in LA, no management, no place to live. I had to bunk with people. And then uh, I got this message through mutual friends that Robert desperately wanted me to call him. And I called him and I listened to what he had to say, which was along the lines of, I never knew that they weren't going to give you the role and I'm devastated. And the call wasn't anything but a plea to just keep lying for him. I will lose my degree at VCA if you go public with this. I will lose my deal with Miramax. You know, so essentially he was asking me to protect him. And I remember saying to him, I know that you sent that email to my management. And he said, you don't think that I, that was an accident, you know, and I, I, by this stage, I, you know, and I said, it's over, Robert. I'm getting a lawyer. You can talk to me through my lawyer. But no, I'm not going to continue to lie for you. I lawyered up. We took on Miramax. It was ugly. They said terrible things about me. I realised pretty quickly that LA is a very small town. My name was shit. And um, they started offering me money uh, to walk away. And my lawyer said, Miramax doesn't offer money to people they think are lying. And I kept refusing the money. And the money kept getting higher. My stance was, you don't get it. I don't want your money. Make your movie. Make it without me. Just I want the credit. Yeah. From a character created by, from a story by, Tanya Lacey. That's all I yeah. want. But they wouldn't give that to me because Robert wouldn't hand that over. So there's still a, a claim on the film. It's gone nowhere and it's my claim and they won't make it while I have ah. a claim on it because... So that's why the film was never made. Yeah, because if they do, I can then sue oh. them again. So you never settled? You never took the money? No, I never took the money. It wasn't about the money. I mean, I get that. 
I, I do I get that but I also get as I get older myself I honestly get less principled I think and that's only a very very recent thing I have to say but very recently I start to think uh you know what I think they can have it they can have it they can have it all I just want to live with my kids and my pets and to hell with it to hell with it all you know did you you've never had that day um, oh look, I've I've had many of those days, but on this occasion, I mean, there's things that I've seen that have been done, done, and the stories I could tell, and I haven't pursued it. But this this to me was an out and out theft, and a career built on my work. Robert then got legally blonde and directed that and became the golden boy. So, of course, I looked like a fucking idiot. The timing was so bad for me, you know, because he went on to direct a huge hit. And, you know, like I've I've always said, yeah, he can direct, but he can't write, and he didn't write that. And he he was afforded the opportunities he was afforded because of my work which so many times I've let it go by when things have been taken or whatever. But, you know, I was poor and I just couldn't let this slip by. I just couldn't this time. You know, this was a great piece of work. It's probably the greatest piece of work I've written and I have not got my credit on it. How did you recover from that? I mean, I mean emotionally. Well, you know, like... There's been several big events in my life going back to the accident, okay? To the drop, the accident at VCA. Yeah, like that's something that you never recover from. That's like having, being in a massive car accident and the person next to you dies. A part of you dies with, the, with something like that. When you've gone, I'm going to be a ballerina and I've been given talent and I'm going to do this and then all the signs lead to you getting into the VCA, you can do this, you know. And then it's taken and you think, why, you know? So I don't think I've ever recovered from that, but I'm at home with it because I know that that's the kind of event that very few people can ever reconcile, you know? There is always going to be that, why? Why me that day? And with Tiziana, it's a similar kind of thing. What's changed for me, though, with Tiziana is that women are being heard now. You know, when I was there pounding on doors going, no, I wrote this, I was just a fucking idiot or, as Miramax called me, a gold digger trying to make money off Robert Lickettig's back. Then they'd offered me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Here, have hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't want your money. I want the credit. What's changed is the world's changed, that I can talk about this now and be believed and... People will see it for what it is, which was abuse. It sounded like I was crazy, but this is what abuse is. This is what happens to people who are psychologically abused. I suffered, I had, I had nightmares. I had PTSD. It was devastating. It was just devastating. And very hard to think about rebuilding again. You had already rebuilt completely rebuilt twice by this stage what did you think about doing after the Tiziana battle and you were back in Australia I guess did you come back to Australia yeah we did Uh, I mean I I met my husband in LA and he came with me to Australia thank god I had him I mean seriously thank god I had him he went through this whole thing with me he saw what was happening but I was very sick when I came back to Australia. I will not deny. I was very ill and I was suffering horribly. I started writing again, though. It's always come back to that. I just start writing and I started writing and I got some funding for a film and and then I was spotted by someone and I worked in writing children's TV. And, you know, writing for me was, was a, a great thing at this point because I couldn't be in public. Then I had my beautiful son and... You know, and we became a little family, our little unit. And I got better because I had this beautiful bubble that I lived in with my husband and my son. And I felt personally happy. Professionally, 
I just kind of like was like, okay, we're not going to worry about that right now. This is what's important. Yeah, not as important. Yeah. Can I ask about your mental illness? Do you ever talk about or disclose what it is specifically or do you have a diagnosis? I was di- diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time when I was diagnosed, I, this was prior to my son's birth, I was very sick and I and acted out with all the diagnosis that comes with borderline. Now I'm at a point where I don't act out, there's no more slashing, there's no more, you know, extreme rage, extreme joy, all those kinds of things. I don't have the kind of acting out I, what I do have still is that I feel too deeply <laughs> and yeah. which is a, a big part of borderline. That So I I have the feelings but I'm not acting out the, the way I used to relieve them, which was through drugs, alcohol, cutting, rage. You seem quite compulsively creative though. It seems as though you can't not create no matter <laughs> what's going on. Is that part of your mental illness do you think look um here's what i think my mental illness enables me to put on the page the stuff that i put on the page that people love they just don't want all the other shit that comes with it (laughs) which kind of makes it very hard to remain in a place of employment one of the reasons why i continue to create is because i have no choice i haven't had a real job and i don't know how to I'm not very good at enacting with people, you know, like I'm not very good at being in life. So I have no real choice other than to make it in this business. And uh, so that's what I do and I just keep trying. Yeah, but that's called resilience, actually. <laughs> they, they try and teach people that at school and you know, <laughs> those places now, you know. That's actually what you are. I mean, you keep demonstrating and you keep talking about getting up again and I didn't know what else to do, so I wrote, you know. No matter how many times it's stolen from you, it's turned on you in, in various ways. You just get up and do it again. That's the resilience. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, like leaving Australia was actually very good for me. I started doing stand-up here. I'd never done stand-up. I'd done, you know, live shows, but they were more theatrically based. And here I just I started doing stand-up because I could fail here, you know. I didn't have to be Tanya Lacey. I could fail. No one was going to criticise me. I was fucking nobody here, and it was fantastic. And that eventually built up my confidence. I began to see I was funny again. And, you know, if I look back on on everything that I've done, that's always been the case. When I was, I was so happy when I was on TV that I was making people laugh. It made me so joyful to just go, I'm really actually helping people, you know, like it's making a difference to some people. Women are seeing me and going, oh, I want to do that, you know. That's what you gave me and you gave me that joy. You taught me that joy. Not only that, you gave me the material, (laughs) you know, because I just copied you. So, yes, at 14 and 15, you gifted me that. So thank you so much. I've wanted to tell you that my whole life. Oh, thank you. Because before that I was just kind of just bobbing along, nothing special, didn't really, I just didn't, I don't know, just nothing special. And then you gave me this opportunity to shine and to have something memorable about myself and it just changed the entire course of my life oh that's so great thank you yeah it's great thank you thank you for Annette (laughs) and for Tiziana Berberini you know it's funny I was doing an interview with Amanda Keller and and she said something that that's really stuck with me and she said you were doing all this stuff before the chaser before oh yes you know before the clever men and we call them innovative and yet, you know, like where's Tanya's place in history? Where's her label of, oh, this is so innovative, you can have the show every year for the next 20 years of your life. You know, it just didn't happen. And I thought that I'm so, I was so grateful that someone made that statement and recognised that, you know, like put into words something that I, I had felt kind of like, oh, what is this? And it was like, oh, I I see. Yeah, we we don't get that. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee. 
I'll be back next week. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest, please let me know through Facebook. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.